You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Have you ever wondered how collaboration is taught in university? So this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Janet Moore, Professor of Professional Practice at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. I'm really excited for our conversation today because she co-creates, co-designs, and co-teaches the Semester in Dialogue program at Simon Fraser. With dialogue being the heart of relationship building, I'm anxious to explore with Dr. Moore some of the thinking on the connections between dialogue and collaboration and some of her insights on how she takes students through the experience of learning about dialogue and collaboration. So sit back and enjoy episode 15 of the Cool Collaborations podcast with Dr. Janet Moore. Dr. Janet Moore, how are you today? I'm doing great, thank you. Can we maybe start off with you providing sort of a snapshot of your introduction. What's your introduction that you would provide to somebody maybe you're meeting for the first time? How do you describe what you do and and your scope of work? Well, I am a, always like to say that I'm a teaching professor at Simon Fraser University. And they quickly ask me, what discipline are you in? And I tell them that I'm in an interdisciplinary space that is quite unusual. I'm at the WASC Center for Dialogue, and I teach in an undergraduate program, an upper level third and fourth year interdisciplinary program called the Semester in Dialogue. And I've been very lucky to be in that space for the last 15 years. And it's allowed me to do a lot of creative projects at the university and outside the university as well. So when people ask, that question and you tell them your response, do you kind of get um, quizzical looks when you talk about dialogue? When Do people automatically know what you're talking about? Or do you have to sort of follow up with sort of some additional, what you mean by dialogue? You know, what does the Center for Dialogue do, for instance? Oh, definitely. It's not something that many people are familiar with. And as my mom will tell you, it's been, you know, her whole life trying to tell people what it is that I do. And it's much easier if I'm working on a project. To, so that's often if I'm involved in a project, I will speak about the project as opposed to dialogue, which is actually a process. And when we think about the Morris J. Wass Center for Dialogue, it's an amazing place that was an idea of imagine what it would be like if we had a building and a center where we talk differently to one another. A lot of the time when we're engaged with one another, it's around decision-making and, you know, it's heated and it's, we're very used to seeing debate in, you know, our governments and dialogue is an idea of slowing down the conversation. It's a space to have difficult conversations and ideally you're you're using it in a way that we're not making a decision while we're having the dialogue. So we get to explore each other's perspectives and ultimately understand and perhaps shift our own perspectives because of the listening that we get to do. So at the university, there's actually a, a place called the Center for Dialogue, which is you know a, an amazing building that has concentric circles and Uh, There was a time it was being created, Mark Winston, he'd said, I'd like to have 
students be at the center of this project. And he created the semester in dialogue as a space where students could get involved for an entire semester and explore ideas of dialogue. And that's the program that I work with. You know, it's, it's interesting you talk about having difficulty sort of explaining what dialogue is when it shows up in projects or it shows up in activities. Because I have, you know, the same kinds of issues when you talk about collaboration. It's like, it, it is a difficult concept. Everybody thinks they understand. And yet when they sort of dig into it, it becomes a bit, it's like peeling back the layers of an onion. How does collaboration and dialogue kind of connect in your mind? What, like, how does collaboration show up for you? So collaboration shows up when we want to work on problems that are the wicked problems, the complex problems, the sticky problems that aren't easy to fix in our world. So if you think about a lot of the things we're dealing with, whether it's poverty, homelessness, decolonization, sustainability, all of these are not disciplinary problems. They're interdisciplinary problems. And so we need ways to come together across our silos from our different organizations. And so we all speak about collaboration and partnership and really dialogue is a way to slow down and get to know each other and build relationships. And that can lead to different kinds of outcomes. So I always think of collaboration as the simple way to describe it is the one plus one equals three. And I really believe in that, that you can get to new possibilities and new outcomes when we work together in a collaborative mode. But we're very unfamiliar with doing that. We're often engaged in partnerships where somebody wants something from you um, or you're involved in compromise. But collaboration is quite rare, uh, where both sides are getting something out of the partnership and that what comes out of it is actually bigger than what they could do alone. Right. You know, I really like the idea that you mentioned around dialogue being the the slowing it down and taking the decision or the taking the pressure off so that the relationship can build through the process as opposed to and i think of the projects that i'm often involved with that like you say somebody wants something at the end and everybody has a stake in it and so that it is kind of a, a form of collaboration but not it's at a different kind of level than what you're talking about i believe yeah, I'm really interested in possibility. That's really what my job has been about for, and I'm very privileged to work in a space of taking the time to imagine possibilities. I think that we're so, we're moving in such a fast pace, usually not during the pandemic, but in our typical lives, we've moved so quickly that we don't take time out to slow the problem down. And I, I think problem framing is another really important part of slowing down um, and like really thinking about what's the problem here. And when you do, you start to recognize that some parts of organizations may no longer need to be there or that the way we do things has to change. And that's really scary for people. So that slowing down allows the system to be seen and that produces sometimes fear. So you need to go into a space of innovation, feeling confident that you're going to support one another through that collaboration. And I think that's often why, you know, things like this don't work. Collaboration doesn't work is because people are fear for their jobs or, you know, if the things 
the solution suggests change, people are not comfortable with that. Right. Interestingly, the you know the power dynamics that play into it, and the loss, and the you know people's notion that they're going to lose something if they try something different, when in fact they're just trying something different. Yeah, I've been really lucky to be involved with a lot of creative innovation at the university and with partners um, and being a lot of, I'm very comfortable in spaces that are, have divergent thinking involved. And when it's not very common to be in that kind of space and people feel uncomfortable. So dialogue again, kind of opens up space to have really divergent conversations about possibility. And there may be not the possibilities that are typically on the policy table. So to follow up on that question or that comment was what I'm thinking is people tend to want to be convergent thinking, right? This is sort of what I'm taking from my experiences. People want to default into the, how do we solve the problem? So converging on the solution without necessarily doing the divergent part first, the, the what's, what's out there. Is that kind of your experience as well? Yeah, I'm, I think that's over time, I've become very interested in working with artists and designers because their thinking doesn't tend to be convergent, it is divergent. And, you know, design processes, the double diamond is that convergent and then divergent, and you do it twice, you do it multiple times, it's actually spiraling a lot of the time, you're not even sure where you are in the process. I call it in my classroom, the grown zone. That's not my term. That comes from, I'm not sure who created that term. But that's what happens when you're in a place where you're doing that divergent. It feels really uncomfortable because you don't know where you are. I love that space. Like that, if there's anywhere that I'm at ease, it is in that space. And it often has conflict. There's confusion. People feel like the ground is not there anymore. But to me, that's the sign of, oh, we're actually in a place of possibility and there will be convergence towards an idea, but that rarely groups get to that space because they're so focused on deadline and timelines. So you've done a lot of work in the sustainability area and I'm curious how you connect your thinking around sustainability and collaboration and Maybe dig into that a little bit for me. Yeah, I when I went to planning school, I was in I had a background in ecology and biology and I was very interested in, you know, why whales were showing up dead on beaches and my undergraduate degree, I was interested in marine mammal strandings and trying to figure out how I could play a role in solving the crisis that was happening in the planet and, you know, that's 30 years, 25 30 years ago now. And so I went into ecology thinking that that would be the answer. And I found myself working with a lot of biologists and ecologists, and everybody in that space understood the problem and, and had a lot of ideas for the solution. But what I found was that anyone outside that wasn't having the same conversation. So I went across the campus, um, and I met Dr. William Reese, who was working on the ecological footprint concept. And he was in the community and Re- School of Community and Regional Planning at UBC. And he was thinking about how we build cities and how we don't actually have an environmental problem. We have a human problem. And that was really, of course, that was the problem. But here we were in environmental science and envir- you know, and environmental studies. 
And we were speaking about what was happening in the environment, but we weren't talking about our own behavior. And so that's where I really became interested in interdisciplinary work and how you could work in different spaces, having conversations about sustainability. And at the time, if you Googled sustainability and education, the two concepts didn't come together. So there was environmental education, there wasn't sustainability education. And I was at the time, that was the three pillar approach, like we need to have conversations about social justice, as well as ecological justice. And we also need to have people that are working in business and in government in the room. And I was very interested in that space where we had multiple groups, uh, multi-stakeholder processes happening and how those groups were working together uh, towards this idea of sustainable development. And then it has been co-opted over time that, that it's still seen as a simply a green endeavor or an environmental practice. And I've moved away from using the term because I find that People don't get, you lose people right away if you call it sustainability. Uh, you don't get people in the room who are focused on social justice or equity and diversity. So I'm more interested in having conversations now that open up bigger tent and bring more people into the room. Is there an example that comes to mind? I mean, you mentioned the the ecological background, the mammal stranding and that kind of thing, but is there, how did that translate? So that got you going into that sort of multi multi perspective I, I hate to i always hate the term multi stakeholder because it just it makes it too academic maybe but how did it show up for you what what example comes to mind in terms of a success or a learning in that space during my phd i was a graduate research assistant with dr john robinson who ran the sustainable development research institute at ubc and he had a huge collaborative grant across three universities. I think there was 28 or 30 principal investigators that came from a wide range of disciplines. And we would have these meetings with 30 professors, and they also brought people from local government and from the regional district. It was called the Georgia Basin Futures Project. And it was amazing how those conversations were about how do we create sustainability in the region in the long term. And I just assumed that that's how everybody worked. I had, you know, it was my first experience of a large research project and, you know, a multi-million dollar project over many years. This was my assumption that this was how we did things. And what I've learned since is that isn't how we do things typically professors work in disciplines and in their lab or with a few colleagues and and don't spend a lot of time across boundaries and, and definitely I mean more and more with community but it was it was became the usual thing that every week we had these meetings with many many people and really they were attempting dialogue but there was a lot of arguing and 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 I just assumed that that's how we worked and I've taken from that project in the terms of I still have relationships with a lot of the people that were on that project. And I, I take a lot of the thinking around collaboration from that project. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how I, like I've met a few people who they launch into sort of this 
collaborative approach just to put a term to it that well you, you can't do anything without working with a whole bunch of people so let's get a bunch of people together and and how rare that actually is people like to revert to their silos and i think it you know speaks to some of the things we were talking about earlier where people go to their comfort zone a little bit has anything really jumped out at you over the years in terms of surprises something that jumped out and went holy i didn't think that was possible or i didn't expect it to go there i have a feeling that you've seen that a lot in sort of the suite of things you've worked on projects and other things i think i've learned a lot about the speed at which the bigger organizations can work and how to work with the larger organizations and partner and understanding more about what their needs are as organizations and sometimes I think that I was always have a strong belief in the collaboration being the most important thing that the problem that we're solving is the most important and having to learn that you know the president of a university has a really strong interest in their own university and brand and that that story is sometimes more important than the collaborative story and really understanding that and how to work together with multiple partners that have different needs and really understanding through, I think, working with empathy maps, that's what changed my thinking is really working to understand your partner from an empathetic view. That That's actually a tool we use with our, our students. And I think I turned it around one day with my own projects and, and really started to understand, you know, what is the president of a university need and want? We were working with, you know, seven organizations and understanding their point of view is really an important piece. You know, I've, I've used empathy mapping as well in some of my, my projects and teams and such. And, and it's interesting how, I wouldn't say difficult it is, but it's, it's not that it's difficult, it's that it's uncomfortable to put yourself in that frame, right? To, well, what does, what does the other person think? Okay. And then how, how, how am I supposed to know how they feel? Well, imagine how you would feel, you know, that kind of thing. It kind of goes back to that comfort zone that we've been talking about. I think role-playing and empathy mapping, I think there's huge benefit to doing that kind of work. And that's not often like being able to play like that with the other is really helpful in moving collaborations forward. Well, and also taking the pressure off in terms of it doesn't have to be a perfect, you're not looking for a perfect result. It's not about being right. It's about going through the exercise. So can you tell me, maybe this is a slightly different direction, but maybe can you tell me a little bit about the Center for Dialogue and the and the Semester in Dialogue a little bit? Can you give a sense, you, you kind of alluded to how it started with how it came to be. Can you give a sense of all the types of things that might happen there? Or what? How would you describe it? Yeah, I could speak more to the semester in dialogue. That's been my main focus for the last many years. And I teach, we have three semesters a year, and they are collaborative projects in many ways that we co-teach. There's usually two or three instructors per term, and we bring people in from community. I have artists and designers and people that typically are not teaching at the university are brought in to design a semester long experience for students. And the students are there five days a week, full time. They get all of their credits in one semester in that program. And there's only 20 students. So it's a very specialized program, unlike anything that I experienced in university. And there are very few of them across 
North America that are like this, that really focus on undergraduate learning. It feels more like a graduate level course, um, but there's less theory and content and more collaboration in terms of community-based projects. So that each semester is based around a theme and we design projects with community that we don't know where they're going to go. So the students were, are going to work with the community who has challenges. We're going to problem frame together and we're going to solve problems and prototype solutions in a semester. We often will host a dialogue. So the students will put on a public facing event that allows them to use the skills they're learning in hosting dialogues and and they're quite successful we, you know you get 200 people out at an event and experiencing dialogue for the first time and the way that we they learn dialogue is that each week there we have guests come from the community and they sit in a circle with the students for two and a half hours and the students host that space and they learn through practice how to have a conversation that is unlike any conversation you normally have at university. It's really based on telling stories of our experience. They might start with, you know, what's your typical day at work look like? What are some challenges you have? And then the conversation goes in any direction that the students take it. So for two and a half hours, they get to sit with experts from community and not just talk about the issue that they're involved in, but talk more generally about, you know, how are we going to work together to solve these? What, how does this problem connect with my own experience? And it's quite a magical couple hours each week. Yeah. It sounds like it's always focused around an issue or a, or a project, I guess. It's it's not about bringing people into a room to say, we're going to teach you how to collaborate or we're going to teach you how to have dialogue. It's actually teaching dialogue and collaboration in the direction of some issue or some community project. Is that correct? Yeah, we rarely, we teach by practicing and debriefing. So the fall semester coming up is called Semester by the Salish Sea. And I'm designing it, going to go back to my marine biology roots and thinking about, you know, we've named this part of the world, the Salish Sea, for a reason that, you know, the Coast Salish peoples are, you know, have been living here for many thousands of years before us. And that body of water actually crosses the U.S. and Canadian boundaries. There's piles of governance issues there are multiple sectors involved, tourism, fishing, the port, multiple governments. And so to think about a concept as a starting point, but not knowing this fall where we'll go. So we bring in people from all sorts of areas who, who work on the Salish Sea and work in these communities who may have strong beliefs about how this should waterway, you know, what should happen. and we really don't know. And it's quite a difficult thing to teach in an environment where you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what the project's going to be like. You don't know what the end, you know, is it going to be a dialogue? Are they going to have an event? Are they going to, what, what those projects will be like? And it's very exciting because it's collaborative, the whole thing, the, the co-teaching is collaborative, the me connecting with the group of students who will come in and working together to form relationships and trust 
and then moving an idea into action is, is really exciting and very unusual. Typically a classroom is, I have a lot of things I'm going to transfer to you. You're going to have a test and you'll tell me if you, you know, meet my requirements and that's the end and I give you a grade. And in this, we're actually trying to do something together that has never been done each semester. You know, what you're touching on, at least in my mind, is that shows up often as the thing that prevents pretty much everybody from doing collaborative approaches or, or having dialogue on issues because they, we don't know where it's going to go. And they don't know if it's going to quickly get outside the realm of what they can do. So how would you approach sort of those types of things where you're kind of exploring a topic and you don't know where it's going to go, but it, it gets into, you talked about governance issues and, and we, we touched on the power types of things before. How do you navigate that part of the discussion? I mean, one of the things that is different is that we are co-teaching. That is very unusual. And I think it should be a model for everything. I think we should have two prime ministers. I think we should have two premiers. I think you'd have a lot more women involved in a lot of projects if they were done collaboratively and that you had a partner to rely on. I think that's the secret is when I teach, I have two other people to say, wow, this feels really scary. And I don't know how today is going to go. And they say, I, you know what, I'm there for you. Like, and you just, I just have to look across the room and they're like, they'll pick up in terms of bringing the confidence that we're going to be okay. We're going to try something new and we're going to get there together. And that something new is way more interesting than repeating something that's been done before or writing a report. I'm really starting to think about the world as like, that's all we do is write reports that end up on the internet that nobody reads. And somebody says, well, we need resources or we need a website. And, and we actually don't. That's what we need is to learn to take risks together and support one another in trying new things and experimenting and, and being comfortable with cultures of experimentation and trials. And that's, you know, right now you're seeing that, you know, we're trying, trying, having to try a lot of different things and, and watching the people respond to trial and error is really part of collaboration. How do we work together? We are in a really difficult place on this planet in terms of, you know, how we are, how limited our resources are and how we need to work together. And it's probably more important to be prototyping solutions than it is writing reports. <laughs> it's funny you mention that because I'm actually, I have two projects on the go right right now, and we're just in the throes of, guess what, report writing. And the funny thing is, is the group itself is recognizing that the report is not the thing. It's, you know, what what's going to happen because of this and, and how do we move? So I think you're, you're speaking to what every collaborative group or successful collaborative group sort of tackles a little bit, which is how do we make this Thing we're working on means something or carry on have some of the projects you've worked on in the past through the semester in dialogue how have they how have they continued on or is it sort of a you know one semester i get my credits and i'm done or are you seeing examples where it, it's sort of like wow that sort of took off i think that we're not expecting the projects of an undergraduate semester to you know be the game changers they're they're 12 weeks you know, the projects last eight weeks. 
What we are expecting, though, is that the students become the game changers. And that's what we have evidence of, is those students are all over the city working as leaders and shifting the conversations and bringing uh, experimentation and confidence around experimentation, bringing skills of facilitation and trying different new ways of doing things. That's the beautiful thing about being a teacher is you get to witness your students, you know, running the city now, and they're all across in multiple organizations. And that's, it is really that the semester builds confidence in being who you are and figuring out who you want to become. And that's really what we're teaching. It's not necessarily about the content of that semester. People you know, want to take a certain semester because of a topic. But what really they learn is how to collaborate, how to work in a group better, and how to talk to one another about working in groups and deal with conflict and be leaders that think about themselves in a group differently. And I think part of that is you know, doing a lot of self-reflection as part of the semester And that's something as leaders that you often don't do until you're kind of midway through your career is someone allows you to go, you know, to a retreat and think about your work as a leader. But if you think of 21 year olds as leaders and tell them it's time to start thinking of themselves that way, it shifts how they are seen in the world and how they see themselves. Have you seen reactions or or students that have surprised you? Like, have you seen the results show up as students that can lead around the city or around the province or wherever? Has there been any sort of examples that sort of just jump out as like a almost a, wow, I really didn't think that was going to happen? Yeah, there's one of them's a mayor. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> and uh, his friends from his semester are working in the mayor's office with him. And that surprised me. I have a student who's, um, I just saw on social media who won an award. She's leading outdoor indigenous women outdoors group. And I remember having a conversation about her identity and she was sort of just kind of wrestling with her indigenous identity in the semester. So now to see her shining, running this not-for-profit, winning awards, leading women's adventures with other Indigenous colleagues. It's, I mean, it was just, it's amazing. And I don't, that has nothing to do with me and my semester. I think it's multiple points that they hit. And I'm very cautious to not take responsibility for, you know, the student who became the mayor or they're on trajectories that we're as teachers helping them. You know, there's a lot of them that become executive directors of organizations. And I don't think that that has to be how you lead is to be the top person in an organization. And I I spend a lot of time with students who are not those kind of leaders. And maybe it's that they publish their writing in the Globe and Mail. And it's a first person piece about their wrestling with who they are and who they are as a Canadian. And that's just as important as becoming the mayor in a way. Does the, the semester in dialogue attract a certain kind of, of student, somebody who's sort of already maybe inclined towards collaborative approaches, or is it more broad than that? It's more broad. I think people hear about it as an opportunity 
to try something different. So we get a mix. We do get some students who are looking for amazing experiences to put on their resume because they're already leading, but other students who maybe don't fit with the typical university platform and are different kinds of learners. There's no requirement for GPA bots. I love to take students who have had struggles in their undergraduate career because they haven't figured out what they want to do yet. And I think it's, you know, the world is putting so much pressure on them so young to figure that out. And we do a lot of work in the semester to meet a lot of people doing different kinds of work that they start to understand who they are and and who they want to become. How is the, and maybe I'm not sure whether you've had the opportunity to try it, sort of the semester and dialogue type approach this in a virtual world. So how well do, do these kinds of dialogue approaches and tools, et cetera, how do they translate into that virtual, this virtual world we're all in now? Well, we've had the opportunity now to run three semesters online, one of which went from in-person to online. And then the summer and fall and spring have all been online. And it's mixed. It's quite surprising how well a dialogue goes in a Zoom environment. So that's been surprising to find out, as my meditation teacher says, you know, love can pierce the screen. (laughs) There's a beautiful, I've seen beautiful, magical moments in dialogue on Zoom, which surprised me that we could go that far together without being in the same room. And I think we learn together through the semester how to take pauses, how to, you know, we really talk about reading the room and not having to raise our hands in order to speak. But you can see that someone, if you slow the conversation down enough, you can see that someone has something to say and you're all facilitating that conversation. You're not waiting for the teacher or the host to tell you who goes next. And that can work if you're really present on Zoom, but you really have to have everyone not looking at their phones or their other parts of their screens, but getting into that mode and and you can do that really well. And the other great thing that's happened is we've had people, students from around the world, be able to access the program that wouldn't have. So there's some time zone challenges, but really interesting to have students in different places in the world having these conversations. I had a student in Africa during the semester, and right now there's students in both Europe and Africa. You know, that's one of the things I've heard as one of the big positives about pretty much everything virtual is that the access has broadened so much, and it's making us as a society and as just people in general think, rethink like school boards and everything else, rethink what it means to be a school or what it means to to deliver whatever it is you're delivering because now you can you know you can access anybody anywhere well we could before but now we realize that we can so it's interesting to hear it showing up in the teaching realm that it's like wow i can i can bring students from africa and how cool is that for everybody in the program because it's such a broad perspective to bring my challenge, though, and the, the part that I'm very interested in is how, as human beings, we change because we are in the room with one another. And that's a lot of my work that I've done. I've been on a sabbatical for a year is to think about the nervous system. And as I've taught over the last 20 years, I've seen anxiety in my classroom become more and more present to the point where students are unable to, you know, manage their day to day lives as a result of anxiety. And 
what I'm learning about the nervous system is that we co-regulate as humans. It's one of the amazing things. And having a calm presence can create calm in others. And that's actually through our heart rate and our blood pressure. And that can't go through the screen. And so when we collectively watch a movie together, it feels different than watching a movie alone. And that's because you actually start to align your breathing and blood pressure with the other people in the movie theater. And we don't think about that. We think about our own experience. And that's part of the Western, you know, dominant paradigm of the individual has become such a part of our thinking. And I think we think that about learning, oh, you can just take this and put it on a computer and the student will get the same learning because we think of it as pieces of information into our brain. But we don't think about what we're learning about how to engage with one another. And so Semester in Dialogues, you spend 12 weeks in a circle with other humans and you know exactly by the end of those 12 weeks how someone's feeling, how they're doing without words, and you don't get that through the screen. So I caution us to think about what we're not learning when we're not in the room together and there are so many other ways of communicating um, between bodies. And I think we just are afraid of thinking about ourselves as having bodies. <laughs> and so we don't like to talk about it as teachers or, you know, universities. But I think that it's a really interesting new area that I'm going to do some more research in. Part of me, of course, jumps to, well, is there things we can do to make the Zoom environment or any virtual environment more conducive? So it won't be the same as in-person, but how do we make it more in-person, more like in-person? And some of that is, I'm sure that you've explored some of those tools with your class as well. And because these moments do happen, and so it's not exactly the same, but it's getting closer. It will never be exactly the same as putting people in the room for sure. But that's kind of where I go as a, as a facilitator, that we want to have all of the tools. How do you mix these tools and, and make the best use of all of the pieces, right? Definitely, we've, you know, we're going to pick up some of these tools. I think we just need to be a, as human beings, we're starting to think, oh, what's it like to not hug your friends for a year, right? And our students, okay, we're not maybe hugging them, but there are things that we're doing that calm their nervous systems as young people that, you know, when you ask, how do you know it's going to be okay? It's like, well, I've done this a lot of times and I know it's going to be okay. Yeah. And I can say to my students, like, with confidence, you know, you're going to get really nervous in front of the group speaking, but this is a great practice and you'll get better at it. And I don't think they're getting those opportunities this year, you know, to stand in front of a room. Um, one of the things I we teach our students is how to host. And that means when the guest arrives, you're going to make small talk and you're going to make them coffee and you're going to show them where to put their coat. And that builds their confidence because usually the teacher does that. So they get to speak, they get to interact with experts at a human level and learn that, wow, I can do this. And the next time they're in a job interview, they feel really confident because they've spent a semester engaging with adults that they didn't see themselves as. And they think, oh, wow, I'm actually the same nervous that they are. That's an amazing skill to learn, but it's not in the course curriculum, you know talk to an adult at the door and find out where to put his code and 
get him a coffee. <laughs> you know? well, I, I kind of think back to your discussion or your mention of the, the empathy map, which is, you know, the person coming into the room, what is it, what is it they need? You know, it's really, it sounds like the semester in dialogue is very much about taking yourself out of yourself and putting yourself into someone else's sort of perspective. And what it takes to do that as a person, I mean, you have to have some confidence in yourself as well. Like it, it's building yourself and your perspective of, from someone else. Yeah, I think we don't give young people enough opportunities to be responsible for things. My, I often say that, you know, I went to summer camp and I was a counselor at summer camp where, you know, the entire 200 young people was being led by, you know, a group of 18 year olds. And the entire summer worked like that. I think somewhere there was a cabin of some older adults, but we never saw them. And so I was very comfortable taking responsibility of a group. And I learned that over time. And so I easily give over responsibility to, I mean, these are 23-year-olds, but our society doesn't. We still seem to think that, I mean, these days that you need a master's degree to do anything. And 23-year-olds are able to do a lot more than we give them credit for. And that's really been my work is very quickly at the start of the class, they're responsible for running the entire class. It's not me. I set up the structure and the, you know, arrange a lot of the, the visitors and then they take over as leaders. And by the end of those 12 weeks, they practice what that means to be responsible and to facilitate conversations and and again, to make mistakes and debrief them and figure out how to do it differently the next time. Yeah. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you would like to add? No, it's been a great, interesting conversation. It's always important to um, pull back. And I think the way I describe that to my students is the meta dialogue. You know, you pull out of the dialogue and then what, if, what are we actually doing here and what are we talking about? And so it's been great to think about how collaboration and and dialogue have been a part of my work for so long. And I think the only reflection I'm having is how privileged I am to get to work in that kind of environment and how special this Center for Dialogue is. Well, the way you've been describing things makes me uh, want to sign up for a couple of these courses and, and be part of that discussion, because that's when you talk about the possibilities of bringing people together and having good dialogue and good collaboration. That's what kind of gets my takes my energy through the through the roof. I know I have a lot of people who want to this semester by the Salish Sea is getting a lot of interest and it's making me realize that how many people want to have bigger conversations and these spaces don't exist. And the difficulties in government between, you know, cities and provinces and the feds is that continues to be the challenge and maybe there's a breakthrough we're going to get to where we start to imagine some new collaborative approaches to governance that that may be where we're headed. Let's hope. Mm -hmm. Let's hope. Yeah. So I always like to ask about book suggestions. So is there a book or a resource doesn't necessarily have to be a book that you always recommend or that you give as a gift? When people ask me about my teaching, I always say that I go back to Buddhist philosophy more than anything in terms of like, how do you sit with yourself and with others in a room? So I often give books by Pema Chodron, who's a Buddhist nun. And, um, but the, my, in terms of teaching, I love Parker Palmer's work. 
The Courage to Teach is a book that I go back to and have really appreciated his work on collaboration and gathering. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his center. I'm not, but I have. It's the Center for Courage and Renewal, I believe it's called. And there are quite a few people who are I'm not sure he's still teaching, but that have learned with him. And uh, and I think the way that he gathers people and thinks about, about what it means to teach is really important. One of the things that I always enjoy from these podcast discussions is, aside from learning sort of the details of what people are doing, it's, it's the words that resonate with me and that come up in lots of different ways around different parts of the collaborative process. And so what you just mentioned that really resonates with me is this idea of gathering people. And so now I'm going to have to check out, well, I will be checking out the book and adding it to my ever-growing pile of books to review. So my last question for you today would be, so what advice would you give your 18-year-old self from your experience? And it doesn't have to be about collaboration necessarily. This is a sort of an open-ended What's something you wish you had known when you were 18 that maybe you could advise yourself on? I think how intuition really matters and that I should, you know, follow your gut and listen to your body. That when you meet people that you have those flags and that they really are meaningful. (laughs) So, and to follow the good energy. I think would be um, not necessarily what your brain is telling you to do, but more what your body is telling you, like spaces you want to be in. So the feeling, follow the feeling more than the analytical mind that tells you. So again, it kind of comes back to the nervous system. Like there's a really strong reason your body is telling you things because they feel at ease and calm. And those are really good things for you as a, as a human. So I think you need to be in a state where you can feel what your body's telling you. So I think if I would tell my 18 years old self to meditate, I probably wouldn't. I know that. But I think that's like, how can you at least take time to notice what your body's trying to tell you about? Is this a good collaboration? Is this a good partnership? And not to push things too hard that aren't working like to go there's always other doors yeah it's okay to go in a different direction that it goes back to that experimental yeah kind of approach right it's it's not just about what the group does to experiment but also what you are doing to experiment yeah and i think i would have liked to you know i'm just starting to come to this as a mother and a woman working in academia how do we have more collaborative positions like that we would share responsibility for things. I think we'd have a lot more diverse people in positions of leadership if we shared responsibility. I like that idea. Yeah. I've really enjoyed our discussion today. I, I want to thank you for your time and for taking the you know the opportunity to provide a little bit of insight into what you do and and your thoughts and dialogue and collaboration. So thank you very much. Well thank you for the great conversation. As I reflect on the conversation with Dr. Moore, I think that I'm naturally inclined to want to figure out how to spread knowledge about collaboration. I mean, that's some of why this podcast exists. So my conversation with Dr. Moore resonated with me because she and her colleagues at the Morris J. Wask Center for Dialogue have been successfully doing just that. Using a project-based approach, they are teaching the skills and providing a place to build the experience to collaborate. 
I really like the notion of slowing down the conversation and taking it out of the context of the decision, that sometimes artificial pressure of having to get something done. Slowing it down is the way to deliberately explore different perspectives, and as Dr. Moore put it, allowing the system to be seen. The idea of co-designing and co-teaching is a really important one because it's actually making use of the very things that make collaboration so positive. If in a collaborative space, one plus one equals three, as Dr. Moore describes collaboration, then doesn't a collaborative approach make sense in almost any setting, and especially so when teaching? It would mean that the students are getting the very best of their experience because the professors and the students are working together to curate that experience. I'm grateful to Dr. Moore for spending the time with me to explore a sliver of what she's involved with in this semester in dialogue, and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening, and happy collaborating. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating.